your Bibles this morning, you can turn to the 15th chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 15, next Sunday will be our last sermon in this series through Mark. The Apostle Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, that if we step back for a moment and let it stand, it seems like it's a little bit overboard or it's just like a, you know, some pious type of hyperbole. Surely Paul can't mean what he says there, given everything that's in the Bible. I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. So in other words, I purposed in my heart that among all of you, the only thing I wanted to know about, I wanted to teach about and proclaim was Christ and Him crucified. And maybe we say, I feel like there's more that needs to be known, proclaimed in a church than just Christ crucified all the time. And then later in Galatians 6, 14, Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. That's a very, for Christians, it sounds very, you know, that's a very good statement. But have you ever thought about what he's saying? If you put it in today's terms, may I never boast in anything except death by lynching. May I never boast in anything except the electric chair. I glory in the electric chair. Why is Paul so obsessed with the cross on which Jesus died? The story of the cross on its own is not a good story in the sense that it doesn't give us the warm fuzzies. Jesus died on the cross. He died a brutal death. The details of His crucifixion are horrendous. Of all the things you could talk about and make your focus and make your boast and the entire reason for being alive, why would the apparent defeat of Jesus... The apparent failure of his ministry, the darkest moment of his life on earth. Why would that be the one thing, the main thing Paul is obsessed with declaring to the church? Why would Paul boast in the cross? That's a whole other level of devotion. Why would he dedicate his life or attach his very identity to this death? Christ crucified is not a niche in the story of God in the world he's made. It's not a nook in this giant house of other Christian topics that just for Paul was the most important thing, right? That's not how we're meant to read Paul, to step back from him and not, and then just say, well, Paul was really serious. Paul must have been really devoted. 1 Corinthians 2.2 is a statement of what the church is for in the world, period, in totality. The proclamation, the knowledge of Christ Crucified. It's what mission is for. It's what Sunday school is for. It's what children's church is for. It's what preachers are for. In the crucifixion of Jesus resides all theology. It's the cross and only the cross that makes God knowable. Not exhaustible, but knowable. In the brutal death of the Son of God, God has made Himself more clear than in any other means of communication. Paul understood what I wish I understood, what I hope we understand as His church here in Moundsville, that what Moundsville need from, what Moundsville needs from us, what the Ohio Valley needs from us, is Christ crucified. That it's the whole story 
of who God is and who we are and the one message that always has to be intentionally center stage. We aren't supposed to move beyond it. We aren't meant to leave it in the periphery and just call it the main thing, right? No Christian's going to disagree with that probably. Is the cross the main thing? Oh, absolutely. Then why isn't it the main thing, right? We are meant to know it and treasure it as the basis, as, as this whole story that we have. If all the Bible was, was to be seen as like this guidebook for our lives and lessons for life and all that, but it doesn't have the cross, what difference does it make? We're meant to know it and treasure it. Here is the central moment in this text of all human history. And yet at the same time, the moment that each individual person must address as it relates to themselves. At the cross, Jesus Christ was forsaken by God that you and I might be accepted by God. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for your son. We praise you for Jesus and what he has done and accomplished. And we acknowledge with you that he is now reigning, seated at your right hand as you make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Father, may we see ourselves this morning in relation to Christ. Draw us near to the cross. Remove these 2,000 years or so of distance and put us there at Golgotha. Put us around the cross. Father, do what you can do, what my words cannot do. So, Lord, please be with me. Help me in these moments not to trust in my own arguments, my own speaking ability, whatever it may be. Just please, Father, come and abide in this place. Open our eyes to Calvary, we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified there for us. Amen. Let me read 33 to 41 here of Mark chapter 15. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. While he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So as we come into verse 33, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for about three hours. He was crucified at 9 a.m. our time. And now at noon in verse 33, the sixth hour, by Roman reckoning, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. In the middle of the day, when the sun should be at its brightest, Darkness covers the whole land from 12 to 3 for three hours. 
In the story of the Bible, once when Israel was settled in Goshen, remember the land of Goshen in the middle of Egypt, under the covenant care of the Lord, it was Egypt that was darkened under God's judgment, while Israel remained mercifully in the light where they were. But Israel has broken the covenant, and now she is covered in darkness as she crucifies her Messiah. If we've been paying careful attention to Mark, and I know that's hard to do with a distance of weeks, I totally understand that, but if we're paying careful attention, we'll realize that this darkness, when we see darkness in the Gospel of Mark, this is a, according to Mark 13, 24, a preliminary sign that should make us expect the coming of the Son of Man, according to what Jesus has said in Mark, but He's being crucified in the darkness. More than anything, however, this darkness shows us that Jesus, Jesus is now being made subject to the judgment of God. The Old Testament used darkness as a symbol for judgment, especially for the great day of the Lord, the great day of judgment, as a sign that Egypt was under the curse of God. As I mentioned, people stumbled around in deep darkness, a darkness that could be felt, according to Exodus, probably because it was weighted with the judgment of God on people. Darkness at noon in the Bible is particularly noteworthy since it was used on several occasions to emphasize the severity of God's judgment. According to Job in Job 5.14, it was the fate of the wicked that they meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. In Deuteronomy 28.29, when God warned Israel of the curses that would fall on them if they broke the covenant, darkness at noon was one of the ways they knew they were under God's curse. It illustrated the curses. Once again, here and now this time, beloved, I believe as the final straw with Israel, they have broken the covenant just as they did before they were taken into exile. When Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59:10, we grope like the blind along a wall, groping like those who have no eyes. We stumbled at noon as in the twilight among the vigorous as though we were dead. And in Isaiah, when the Lord saw them groping in the darkness, he decided to come and save them himself. In Isaiah 59, 15 through 20, promising to come to Jerusalem as her Redeemer. So when Israel crucifies that Redeemer that has come, it is the final death knell of the covenant. So the prophet Amos picks up on this idea in Amos 8, 9, and 10 of his book. When he says that on that day, being the end time day of the Lord, apocalyptic darkness will fall. No longer will it be a time of rejoicing for all feasts will be turned to mourning. And the mourning will be as bitter as that over the loss of an only son. Just as Jesus himself alluded to as he spoke to why they would fast after his departure, his loss in that sense in Mark 2, 20. God's judgment falls on his son. The one faithful Israelite, the only one who has not broken the covenant, is in the darkness of noon being judged by God. But as the darkness falls on Jesus and therefore on Israel, we hear Jesus cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Earlier in Mark, Jesus was constantly surrounded by people. You remember the first chapters of this book. There were always massive crowds, crowds so big that sometimes it was like they were going to be crushed. They couldn't breathe. They couldn't move. But he's gradually been deserted throughout the Gospel of Mark. You can track this. Deserted by the crowds. Deserted by Israel's leaders. 
the nations themselves in the person of Pontius Pilate, deserting him, handing him over to judgment, and even tragically by his own disciples. A writer named R.H. Smith said that the Gospel of Mark is the record of the steady and relentless forsaking of Jesus and of his being handed over into the darkness and pain of death on a Roman cross. And now in his dying moments, in the darkness that seems to signal God's displeasure, when he was the son with whom he was well pleased, Jesus feels absolutely alone, literally feels alone, without anyone and without God. Now how do we explain this moment in light of the deity of Jesus as the Son of God, the eternally pre-existent second person of the Trinity, God the Son in human flesh? How is He being forsaken by the first person of the Trinity, God the Father? How is this humanity intersecting here with His deity? Beloved, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how this works. What I do know because I think it's what can be known. Jesus is not checking off prophetic boxes here, first of all. right? Jesus didn't have in his mind this list of things in this sense that he was like, oh, i got to make sure that I say that. i got to make sure that I do that as though he's just going through the motions as he's hanging there. Beloved, the prophecies of Jesus and the Son of Man and the Psalms and in Isaiah, they don't predict necessarily what Jesus is saying. In the godness of God, Jesus has said these things, and that's why they're in the prophecies. I don't know the technicalities of it, how, how God could actually forsake him and turn away from him. But I do believe it is true. Jesus is crying out like this because he genuinely entered into our situation. He is feeling what we are going to feel if there is no Savior. This is a part of the wrath of God being endured on our behalf by the Son of God, being forsaken and left by God. The vital thing here then is not whether we can identify with Him in this moment. The wonderful thing, the vital thing is that He is actually identifying with us in this moment. Jesus was forsaken by God because Jesus bore our sin and our humanity and our place. Being forsaken by God, again, is the destiny of every human being that has ever lived, unless there is a substitute who, in God's eyes, has borne that forsaking judgment sufficiently in our place. Somebody has to be forsaken by God. God is just. God is holy. He won't go back on His word. Remember, He said in Exodus, I by no means will acquit the guilty. So how is he going to acquit guilty people every day, all day, and be who he said he was? There has to be a substitute. There has to be somebody that doesn't just kind of float by and, and basically technically on paper become our substitute. No, no, no. God doesn't play games like this. God doesn't change who he is. It's literally being poured out on Jesus. And the darkness is maybe the sign of that. In the middle of the day, falling on the Son Himself, He is our High Priest, beloved, who in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 that we read this morning, shared in flesh and blood because it was necessary, a necessary condition for that work on our behalf in order to defeat the one who held the power of death, 
and set humanity free from its ongoing fear of it. Jesus learned obedience in this way by what He suffered, the Scripture teaches, as He condescended to take on what we must and cannot ever take on. God did not simply go back on His Word to never acquit the guilty. Jesus stood in our place to be punished and forsaken so that His people might be redeemed. And even if we wanted to say, look, I don't want Jesus to die in my place. I'll die for my sins, beloved. It won't do it. What good is a sinful life being offered up as a sacrifice? What, what good would it do? That's like going, going to buy a car with no money. Right? Here, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to get a loan. I'll buy it. Do you have any money? No, I do not. Right? He came to this hour as the servant of the Lord, the Bible has prophesied. And in this cry that is often called here, the cry of dereliction of the Son of God, He's fulfilling His ministry as that servant. That's what the servant of God has to do. He was handed over to God's wrath and bore the full weight of it, including feeling forsaken as though God had turned away from him in judgment. The Father leaves him to endure this affliction rather than saving him out of it. That's why he's crying out. There's no separation of the persons of the Trinity here. I don't believe that. Even the Trinity itself, we're, we're, that's a very educated but still a guess on the Godhead, right? That's just our term for trying to make sense of what we clearly see in Scripture. There's one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But trying to explain that is a whole different idea. We just see it, right? It's there. But there's no separation. that God did not stop being God at the cross. We, we shouldn't even really say that, you know, God the Father died for us. The Father didn't die for us. The Son died for us, Right? It's the depth of their union that makes this so profound. Not that there's a separation, but that they're completely united and Jesus feels forsaken. We know He was forsaken because it's God's wrath against sin and He was bearing mine. I deserve this. No question. How do I know Jesus was really forsaken? Because I'm really a sinner. Because I deserve God's wrath so much. And I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. I haven't outworked my sinfulness. I've not graduated from Calvary. It's not like now I don't need the cross. And what I do is get up here on Sunday and tell you how you can get where I am. No, no, no. Beloved, we are, we are beggars helping other beggars find bread. That's, that's what we are. Obviously, God is not absent here. That's not what Jesus means when He says, Why have you forsaken me? It's not that God is absent and He can't find Him. It's that God is there, but He's there in judgment. We would all be forsaken forever like this if He wasn't. The crowd didn't understand what He meant, I don't think, in verse 35, they thought, I think the way we ought to read this, I think, is that 
they honestly thought, I think, I think he was calling for Elijah. Elijah, for what it's worth, sounds very much, uh, Eloi, sorry, what Jesus says here to refer to God, sounds very much like the Hebrew word for Elijah, Elahu or Eliahu. They sound the same a little bit, or maybe they thought he was crying out for Elijah to return in fulfillment of prophecy to rescue the righteous, but that would be just another sign of their misunderstanding of these prophecies. I, th- I think we can assume this because someone ran to get him sour wine here, which might have been there for the soldiers. It was a favorite drink, so this mixture, the sour wine of the soldiers, because it apparently quenched, quenched thirst more quickly than water. But again, did someone run to get it to help him or to mock him? Because you can't take 36 like that. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down, right? One of the reasons we think this is because Luke records that the soldiers offered it to him, this sour wine, to mock him as the king of the Jews. Again, again, as we might be seeing here happening at the end of verse 36, hoping actually to prolong his life, that is his suffering, even more. But we find out in John's gospel that Jesus was so desperately thirsty here. In some sense, he takes it, he drinks it. And then in verse 37, we hear him cry out in Mark. And the king is dead. He's literally dead here. He's gone. He died. He drank the cup of God's wrath all the way down to the dregs. All the way to his literal death. Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The Jewish religion is over here. Their temple has ceased to operate. It is no longer considered valid or necessary by God in any way. The Messiah has come. God's wrath, which required sacrifices has been poured out and satisfied in full. There's no memorial needed here. The offering that can wash away sin has been sacrificed and none will ever be needed again. Beloved, in a very real sense, the death of Jesus on the cross was the end of religion, period. If by religion we mean our works and our offerings as the means of drawing close to God in any way. We're not saying God ended worship or ended devotion to Him or anything like that. We're saying that as a means of what we offer up as the means to get close to God, it's over. No rules, no regulations or rituals should now be imposed between God and humanity. God Himself has torn the temple. All those things before that were in the temple, all the rudiments of Jewish religion by God's design, were created to sustain the distance between God and humanity. That's why in so much of it, you can't come close to this, you can't touch that, you can't go here, you can't go there. Why? Because in the Old Covenant, God is reminding them, these sacrifices are necessary, but they're not getting you close to me. In actuality, your sin has not been washed away. This is a picture of what needs to happen to you. Don't come near me, or I will kill you. And look what happens here in that very place where the sacrifice is offered up on the Day of Atonement. The curtain is torn from top to bottom. Curtains don't tear by themselves. God tore this curtain. That separation 
that distance between a holy God and sinful humanity has been done away with from God's side. God's hands tore this curtain down. God's hands removed the separation. God redefined religion. God provided the means of forgiveness and redemption. God wanted to be close to us much more than we ever wanted to be close to Him. And now whoever desires, whoever desires from every nation on the earth, and again, not just territories and domains and city-states, but ethno-linguistic nations, peoples from every tribe, have access to God the Father through the work of His Son on the cross. God has come close. How? Everything between us and God has been defined by distance up to this point. How has He come close? The reason is found between the darkness that fell at noon and the tearing of the curtain that came at three. Jesus was forsaken by God for us. That justice, that holiness that kept us apart has been satisfied from heaven in the person of Christ. Jesus was forsaken that we might be accepted. See, again, beloved, the salvation of our souls is not merely a forensic issue where there's this sin we need forgiven and it's cleared out of the way. That says nothing about our relationship. Right? If I adopt a child, it doesn't mean that child will be loved. It just means they belong to me now. Right? When we read this, God is telling us, I'm not just forgiving your sins. I'm doing away with everything that separated me from you. Right? So come and drink, come and eat. That's why He talks that way. That's why Jesus talks that way. Because God isn't just taking care of the math. He loves us. That's why Paul, this is why Paul determined to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. What else is there? If there isn't that, the the crucifixion of Christ between us and God, the only thing between us and God is wrath and judgment and being forsaken. As sinners in desperate need of that, we ought to think of everything else about God as details we are privileged and honored and allowed to discover and study and savor. Right? Jesus doesn't need defenders, right? You, you don't defend lions, right? They, they're fine on their own, right? This, we take ourselves so seriously as Christians. And maybe that sounds crazy, but just think about it for a minute. Like, the kingdom of God is not going to fall if you don't do that song. The the church and its mission in the world is not going to come crumbling down if you just don't teach that class. Or don't go to this place, or don't go to that place. Beloved, the wrath of God has been satisfied. God's not up there pacing, so help me if these people don't get it together. Right? If, If, I mean, I wanted to save this person, but... This person didn't tell the story right, so now what do I do? Right? Beloved, do we know what Jesus is doing here? All that He's covering. You and I are not left in the world to perform enough righteousness for Jesus to say, okay, after 50 years of Christianity, it's clear that you deserve the cross, so you can come in. That's not, we're, we're saved. It's finished. 
give your life away. You're safe. That's the rationale of Scripture, right? Don't, you better prove to me that you, you, all that amazing movie Saving Private Ryan. I've probably talked about it before. So good. That was, I, I remember that was the first movie. When did it come out? Like 2000 or something? So I've graduated high school by this time, all that stuff. The first 15, 20 minutes of that movie, I learned as a boy that thought he was a man, oh, that's how we won that war. Those guys bled and got blown apart so that I could sit here and watch this movie. Right? I, the, the, the gate of the boat came down and they just got just waved over by bullets from the Germans there on the shore. That's, that's how we got free, beloved, in the providence of God. I just read in history that we won the war. Yeah, because they died. And then there's this amazing moment later where the main character, I guess, the, the leader of the little, I hope I'm not ruining it for you, but you got to see these movies, all right? Because there was like 20 years ago, there's a statute of limitations on preacher illustrations. But he, Tom Hanks' character, the captain, wonderful character, is dying. And he grabs a hold, I think, of, of Matt Damon's arm, that the Private Ryan character... And all, all the guys are dead, I think, except two of them that went to rescue him. And he said, earn this. Earn this. And that shaped Ryan's entire life. And of course it did. In, in the earthly sense, absolutely, young man. Make your life worth what these men did. I, I'm not denying that in an earthly sense, right? I just want you to know. Jesus is not telling you to earn anything. So stop trying. Your Christian life is not your quest to prove that you are worthy, to prove that you deserve to sacrifice, that He didn't waste His blood on you. Beloved, all His blood covers you. Covers all of you. Right? That, that doesn't make me want to keep sinning. It makes me wish, why can't I stop? Beloved, you're not being called to earn it. It's so good, it's paid for. Enjoy the meal. Enjoy the vacation, however you want to think of it. It's paid for. Your salvation is paid for. Let your life be one of enjoyment that it's finished. Not frantic attempts to make yourself worthy of it, because that seems to make it sound like something was missing. And nothing was missing in this substitution. Nothing, beloved. Verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, we know from other texts, into your hands I commit my spirit, right, Father. So even in his forsaking, Jesus knows the Father hasn't left him. Into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. We see here that coming to fruition from John when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself. This is the first one. There's something in seeing it and hearing him cry out that that centurion said, he was who he said he was. Whether he's saying it's the son of a God, which is one translation, or I think correctly, the son of God, because of Roman thinking, beloved, he sees it. And there's irony here. 
The Romans believed that Caesar was the son of a god. A couple hours earlier, this man is probably saying, Hail, king of the Jews, with the rest of them. Because they say, Hail, Caesar. So they think it's funny. This clown thinks he's a god. We'll praise him like we praise Caesar. The Jews allegedly believed that God was God. But the Jews have delivered the Son of God up to be crucified, and the Romans have completed the task for them. But here it's a Roman soldier, a centurion, no less. Centurions have direct control over at least four Roman soldiers at a time. They're up there. And to be a Roman centurion, would you would have been a bad boy. I mean, that, that was quite an accomplishment in that army in that day and time and how they fought. And here it, it's, it's one of them. A centurion who makes the great confession that the gospel of Mark was written to prove. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes, He is the Son of God. He knows by the suffering of Jesus. You, you we're getting, in a sense, some insight into why Paul would say what he said. Because there's something about the crucified Christ. This man, not Caesar, is the Son of God. The Roman centurion in Mark reveals Jesus for who He is. Earlier, I mean, this man is responsible for killing Him. Right? All His disciples had fled for their lives the night before. And, and again, besides the women here and, and probably the disciple John, the Roman centurion is the only other one in the story that has any sense of what's going on here. All the disciples had fled for their lives just the night before. But in verses 40 and 41 here, we read that some of the women who had traveled with him and helped him during his earthly ministry had at least stayed close enough to personally observe his death. That's a dignity that it looks like 11 of the 12 didn't give to Jesus. The women did. Where are the men? I thought we were the strong ones. Not today. Mary Magdalene, from whom Jesus had cast seven demons. Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. We know from 6.3 of Mark that Jesus had brothers named James and Joseph. So this, may, this Mary may be Mary, the mother of Jesus, but it's very strange that Mark doesn't refer to her as such. And then Salome, whom Matthew identifies in his gospel as the mother of Zebedee's sons. So this is most likely the mother of James and John. And again, the absence of men here may be another sign of God's judgment on Israel. Where are they? It is sad that none of his own could show up. So lastly, we read in 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, we can just see how... Well, that goes together with Jesus in Mark 13. Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Jesus is dead. He hasn't passed out. He hasn't fainted. He's not pretending. He's dead. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Jesus died at 3 p.m. on a Friday, I believe. 
The Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. It was most likely late afternoon when a prominent council member of the Sanhedrin that had sent Jesus to his death, Joseph of Arimathea, goes to Pilate, asks if he can have the body of Jesus since it was just before the Sabbath. At this point, there wasn't going to be much time to remove his body, give him a proper burial. So, by the way, we know now that not everyone in the Sanhedrin was opposed to Jesus. We also read of Nicodemus earlier in one of the Gospels, I believe, actually coming to Jesus' defense in the Sanhedrin. That's at least two. Joseph of Arimathea was himself looking for the kingdom of God, strongly indicating that he believed in Jesus. It took courage to ask for his body from the man who'd ordered his execution as a criminal. Romans didn't usually release the bodies of executed prisoners that way ever at all. They were usually deposited in Gehenna, which was the garbage dump outside Jerusalem, which was an indication of contempt for them. They were worthless. They didn't even deserve a burial. But sometimes Romans would leave a body hanging for two or three days on the cross until the body started to decay and decompose as a warning to others, right? Pilate was amazed he'd already died then. Usually they didn't die that fast. It wasn't unusual for a criminal to hang for two or three days. Death was usually the cumulative effect of blood loss and dehydration, exposure, hunger. Sometimes to speed things up, the soldiers would break the legs of the criminals. Because one of the ways they stayed alive is uh, they, they would try to push their feet up on the little knob on which they sat, push their feet up to get air into their lungs, and the soldiers would break their legs so they couldn't do that in death by crucifixion was usually specifically death by asphyxiation. Jesus died before that happened and thankfully was spared from that in his death. None of his bones were broken. And in verse 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. For what it's worth, it's believed by most biblical scholars that Jesus, his earthly father, Joseph, was dead by now. He was much older than Mary. But there's still a Joseph here that cared for his body like a dad would. Forsaken and not forsaken. Right. Jesus laid, or Joseph, I'm sorry, laid him in his own probably prepaid tomb carved into the rock in a garden close to Golgotha in the shadow of the cross. Joseph wasn't able to anoint the body with spices before sunset, before the Sabbath started. That's the reason the ladies will come back to the tomb the morning after the Sabbath is over, Sunday morning, which is the place of verse 47 in the story. It's just signaling that, oh, that's why they are going to come. Now, we know where this story goes, don't we? It's really hard for us to, to kind of capture the devastating magnitude of the cross because we know the resurrection. And I, I'm, I don't want to take away from that. I, I simply would have us consider, then, why isn't Paul's message... The message of the gospel. Why isn't it called Christ resurrected? Right? I determine to know nothing among you but Christ and Him resurrected. Because that's also true. Just as important. Just as valuable. Why is it Christ crucified? Resurrection is how it ends. But beloved, that's not how it began. The text hasn't gotten there yet. And particularly, very interestingly in Mark... There's tons on the crucifixion. There is very little on the resurrection in Mark. And Easter's coming. Don't worry, we'll give it plenty of time. I'm serious, don't worry about that. I'm saying, in the text we're in, think about this. 
It's, it's not, again, it's not that one is more important than the other. That, that's not what's happening. I think you can make a very good argument that Christ crucified encompasses the entire thing. It's that Jesus didn't die a natural death. And he was God, so of course God raised him from the dead. Right? Of course Jesus is resurrected. Right? But if he doesn't subject himself willingly as a substitute, knowingly as a sacrifice to the evil of men and the devil as the instrument of God's wrath on sinners and die this brutal death, it wouldn't matter if he was resurrected. Do we understand that? There had to be a punishment for this to be the offering that was required. He couldn't just come and live and die, right? Why, for the argument that Jesus is just an example, then why die on the cross? You could have lived 60, 70 years and died, and you would have done amazing things, and you still died, so you, you still took on the whole human experience. Why do you have to die like this, beloved? That's the story, how Jesus died. We needed a perfectly lived life of righteousness. We don't talk about this enough. We not only need forgiveness, we need righteousness. Both completely, fully. The righteousness isn't the part we do. God has done my part, or God has done his part, now I do my part. Your part stinks. My part is filthy rags. The righteousness God requires is not deciding, I'm not going to go to that place, I'm not going to say that word, I'm not... Are those things glorifying to God? They can be, absolutely. But they're not earning anything. They're not, that's not why Jesus died. You can just decide not to be a drunk. You don't need Jesus for that. He had to be a deliberate sacrifice so that we might be forgiven and justified. That's the part the resurrection plays in the story of Christ crucified. God accepted Jesus' offering that he gave on the cross. Therefore, God raised him from the dead. Right? That's the resurrection's place. Ah, this is successful. Salvation is purchased. God has vindicated the one that died for me. Therefore, I am vindicated. But if he isn't crucified, there is no story of my vindication. He, did, he, he doesn't just come to die of natural causes. He comes to be crucified because we are sinners all. We live in a cynical, unstable pluralistic, and, and listen, multicultural world, right? Filled with gods. Filled with them. Peter Bolt says, as the divine public service of these gods multiplies, so does their inefficiency. People have been forsaken by all the gods they tried to worship time and time again. And Jesus was forsaken by God that you and I would never be forsaken by God. No matter how we may forsake him. At the end of Mark 15, the king is dead. But it's only Friday. In Christ, by grace through faith in him, God has accepted you. And will accept you if you haven't come to him yet. Come to him and never be turned away. Ever again. Be forgiven, be washed clean, be made new. Come and drink and come and eat forever. This is Jesus for us.